Christmas we got a gift to uh, Steph's going to laugh at me because Steph knew that this would happen. I forgot the gift and I left it at home. And then I said, I'll give it to you tomorrow morning at church. And I forgot it again today. So. <laughs> but, um, I, hey, Sarah. Good morning. Um, we've been exploring ourselves and uh, our society in light of Christ and uh, our spiritual formation over the, the, the last few weeks and even months maybe. And I thought I'd like to start today by bringing our attention to a recent film <clears throat> which depicts some of what we've been exploring, or maybe all of what we've been exploring. Three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, if you haven't seen it. I won't ruin it all for you if you haven't. Um, <laughs> Mary's mad at me already. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. But uh, it's already written. <laughs> it's, it's already all there. Um, but it's, it is a tragic movie. I think we all know that it's a tragic movie about a woman's effort in trying to uh, get the local police to um, find her daughter's brutal killers. Sorry. <coughs> and um, it's wrought with overtones of racism and misogyny and rural poverty and all these different things. And if you'd like to understand or you'd like to see as an example what we've been saying, in, especially in the sermons in the past three weeks or so, uh, about the postmodern philosophy of life and all that stuff, or the, or, or the current humanistic, individualistic worldview, and a society which has unhinged itself from God, just brace yourself from some, from some very strong language and some violence, and then go see this movie. Um, it, is, it is pretty, uh, pretty explicit in its, in its language. Uh, and some might think that the, the central lesson of the movie is violence begets violence, and especially because that's stated by this very innocent girl. She's like the only innocent one in the whole movie. Uh, she's the most nonviolent character of the movie. She's 19 years old, and she's sweet, and she's innocent. And she said, violence begets more violence. And so you might think that that's the central message of the movie. But for me, the film's summed up by the lead character, Mildred Hayes, when she finds herself in a field alone with this deer, right? And the deer's sitting there eating grass, and it's all idyllic and all that kind of stuff. And she speaks to the deer as if she's, she speaks as if to the deer saying, uh, yup, still no arrests. How come, I wonder... Because there ain't no God, and the whole world's empty, and it doesn't matter what we do to each other. And if you've been here for the last three weeks or so, you're going to recognize that sentiment, right? And now, I got to tell you, I did not call the film studio and tell them to put that line in there, nor did I see the movie until this past week after the sermons were written and, and given to you guys. So it turns out that Nietzsche is right. Nietzsche is right that we as a society have killed God, that God is dead, and we are suffering the consequences of that, right? Since in saying this, she acknowledges the current humanistic worldview, which is that without God, life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And as such, it doesn't matter what we do in our bodies. And eventually, if you haven't figured it out, it will not matter. And it does not matter in many cases right now what we do to each other. But she also reveals the angst of living under such a hopeless system 
through her overall anger throughout the movie and also her unrelenting pursuit of her daughter's killer because she knows there's something wrong with that, right? Not to mention the fact that she follows up that statement with, I hope not. I hope not. Because we all hope not. Which reveals to us that the current worldview that we live in doesn't work. It is not working. And we see that all around us. It is not working for anybody. No matter how in denial they want to be about that, it is not working. Given there is something in all of us that know that it's not working, right? That it's not right. Since we are all made in God's image, however broken that image, we still have remnants of it in us, right? There is a God. We intuitively, even if we deny it in our, in our intellectualism and all that kind of stuff, we intuitively know in our heart of hearts that there is a God and life is not empty and it's not purposeless. And it does matter what we do in our bodies, Romans 12, and it does matter what we do to each other. Mark 12, 30. Love God and love your neighbor, which we've talked about a lot in this series. And the funny thing is that in focusing on personal spiritual formation, me as an individual, is that we become more communally minded people in that process. We are the people of God. And violence subsides and peace reigns as Jesus reigns in individual hearts which collectively make up the community of peace. So there is hope. Last week, we spoke about dying to self, right? Dying to self or denying the self, whatever way you want to say it. And, it's, and we didn't speak about it in a nail-biting struggle way, but, a, but rather a calm, joyous, submissive way to the hand of God moving in our hearts. It entails, firstly, what Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty six through 27 If anyone comes to me and does not hate, which really means to prefer over, does not prefer over, you know, prefer uh, him over uh, father or mother or wife or children or brothers or sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Really heavy, strong, important words for us to consider. Right? And that means... That anyone who hasn't fully counted the cost of following Jesus and not really made Him Lord of their lives can't be His disciple, can't really follow Him, right? They can't grasp Christ's teaching in its entirety, the, the heart of it, what it really means. They simply can't enter into that process of total spiritual transformation. They can't do it. It's an impossibility. It's not that they can't intellectually grasp the concepts of the Scriptures. It's that their heart isn't transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to experience these truths as they need to. In other words, the prideful self still stands in the way of that, right? Remember Romans 8, 7-8. through 8, it's, A lot of this sermon is a little bit of a review and you know, kind of hammering down the nail, right? The mind governed by the flesh, the flesh is our sinful nature, right? The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
And those who are in the realm of the flesh simply just cannot please God. And it's not that God doesn't want anyone or everyone to experience this deep spiritual transformation, this deep relationship with Him, or, or, or that He won't allow them to do so. It's just that they can't. They don't have what it takes. There was a time in my life when I didn't have what it takes. You could preach the gospel to me all day long and I just didn't fully get it. If I cringe at Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we spoke of extensively last week, in its command to submit, as we said last week, to submit before full understanding comes. If my pride's hurt and that I think myself intellectually superior to the Scriptures, that they must conform to me, not me to them, that I need full understanding of all this stuff about Jesus before I will make an intelligent decision to follow Him or not, if I feel those ways, I will never fully be able to follow Jesus. Never. you got to remember... It is unintelligent, and your pastor is saying this, and I fully believe it. It is not unintelligent, not unintelligent to say that there are things in the Scriptures that you do not understand. That is okay. Even which rub you the wrong way, that you don't really like. But that you trust them and you submit to their authority anyway. Because that is what Jesus did. That's simply wisdom in understanding that this is the revealed Word of God given to humankind for the sake of knowing God more and more and more over time. Something that we grow in while trusting our Daddy, Abba Father, right? But if I say, well, I don't agree with that part of Scripture and I'll not submit to that, that's not going to be its authority in my life. We, we, we've got to understand that that pride stands between us and Jesus. And Romans calls that sowing to the flesh, sowing to our sinful nature, letting our sinful nature be in charge. It's Adam and Eve all over again saying, I will choose for myself how best I should live. Which is not a choice in the spiritual life. Dallas Willard compares the person who won't submit to Christ's lordship in their lives in these areas uh, to telling a blind person that they can't drive a car simply because they can't see. It's not that they aren't, we aren't allowing them to drive the car, it's just that they can't see to, to drive the car, right? It wouldn't work. So keeping that Romans passage in mind, We also jump over and think about John chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, very familiar passage, and he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. They are born physically and in the Spirit. Capital S, by the way, the Spirit. Uh, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Born again. Yes, it says it in the Scriptures. Jesus said it. It's a term that has gotten negative reviews lately. But Jesus said it, and none of us can be a part of Jesus without being born again. You have to be. So this goes beyond mere intellectual acuity and the grasping of knowledge and concepts, it goes beyond that. 
This discussion does have divine fingerprints all over it. Something of God must happen in the person in order that they are born again. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And that, coupled with Romans 12, 1 and 2, saying to us, submission precedes understanding, makes clear the very first uh, and most important step is counting the cost of following Jesus. Can I do this? Then, we say yes to Him, even if we can't understand what all that means. Because He is safe. And He can be trusted with my life and with my soul and with my heart. But no amount of prattling on from my part, from the pulpit, will convince anyone of that. But it's not that my words are useless, right? If God is calling you into relationship with Him for the very first time, or deeper into spiritual formation right now in your life, and away from the hidden roadblocks that you think that you're hiding from everybody, but probably really are not, then you'll not be able to contend with God for much longer. When these words hit your ears, he will churn it in you. I've been there. I've sat in the pew. And I've had the preacher preach. And I've just, oh my gosh, I really want this. And times I didn't go up. And other times I did. He'll wear you away like water on stone. You'll be like sand on a beach eventually. He will wear you away. But he wants you. He invites you to be a willing participant in that process of spiritual formation, that intimate relationship building. And we will give in. We will give in. We can't contend with God's love for for long. He will wear us away and we will submit. It is necessary for us, and we've said this in past weeks, that we always preach the gospel to ourselves every single day, but we also preach it to each other, and we also take it out to the world around us, to all the nations. It's not only commanded, but it's an absolute joy to do so. It really is. Jesus said in Luke and, and uh, Luke eleven twenty eight, "Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it." Right. Hearers and doers of the word. Romans 10, 17, consequently, faith comes from the hearing of the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And Christ, the story of Christ, is a scriptural story. It's an important story to tell. And in addition to all that, we've got to remember to avoid making this concept of dying to self become this legalistic ladder where we climb our way to God or we end up judging each other in the process and all that kind of stuff and judging each other's hearts and all that. Of becoming too focused on outward behavior, disregarding grace and, and misunderstanding that true, true, true change happens over time from a truly changed heart by the work of God in us. Amen? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Philippians 2.13 We simply want to pursue Jesus well. Right? We want to put ourselves in the position of receiving new mercies and new grace every single day. And in doing so, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're changed into the likeness of Jesus little by little. And over time, 
it, it just sticks, something happens. When we worry, because this is what we do, right? When we worry, we won't be able to think on that thing again. Just put in your most illicit fantasy or your most violent fantasy or whatever it is right there, right? If we worry that we won't be able to think on that thing again, that we can't see ourselves letting go of that or letting go of that action, that we can't become involved in those licentious activities ever again, Because they are like idols to us. They feed us. They make us feel good for this short amount of time, but they don't really work. If we're worried about that, about giving those things up, we've got to remember that spiritual formation in Christ means that we won't always need to avoid that action or that thought. We won't always need to. We will grow up as we grow old if we walk with Jesus well. A lot of times, though, people don't, grow up as they grow old. They just grow old. Rather, our desires, when we walk deeply with Jesus and really well, our desires will conform to Jesus' heart, to His desires, for us and for the world around us as He transforms us and we simply won't want to think on those things any longer. There will be freedom. Daniel's story this weekend was great. I loved it because he said, I've changed. I can see change in my life. He wasn't the only one that said that, but it was so evident in his story that I knew Daniel 10, 12 years ago, and I can see the change as he's walked with the Lord really well. He transforms us, and in essence, it's the alcoholic losing the desire for drinking. That's what it is. It won't always be a struggle. And so, let me ask you a question. How valuable is it to gain Christ in this life. Not just fire insurance forever, right? But literally, how how much do I want Jesus in me? Right? Let's say your childhood friend, who's always been very honest with you, wins the lottery. What was it last night? $455 million? I pay attention to these things. Tells you where my heart is, right? (laughs) I told Tanner on the way home, we gotta stop by 7-Eleven. It's $455 million. My, my 15-year-old said, Dad, give it up. You know, like, <laughs> oh, well. But let's say he wins $455 million and he cashes out and he doesn't spend it and he doesn't tell anybody where he put it, right? And out of respect as his friend, you don't want to like bug him about it. So you don't ask. You never ask. But on his deathbed, he calls you over and he shows you where he's buried it in a basement, right? And he says, if you sell everything you have, and you give your money to charity, I will give you this house. And you can have whatever's in the basement. Would you do that? Of course you would do that. $455 million, you would do that. You sign over a few hundred thousand dollars to some charity, you know, of his choice or whatever, and only for a moment it seems like you don't have anything. But then with a stroke of a pen, with the lawyers present and all those people, you've gained more than you can ever imagine. And we all know what I'm talking about. That is life with Jesus. In Matthew 13, 44, there's a one-verse parable of the field. And it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. He didn't want anybody else to get it, right? And then in his joy, he went and he sold all he had and he bought that field. I would do that. In his joy, sold all he had. 
everything he had, every little bit of what he had, and he bought the field. And we know we're not talking about a literal treasure in a field. That's, we intuitively know Jesus is not talking about that. That's the denial of self, the dying to self that we are talking about. Doing all that we can to get to Jesus. Giving up every little idol in our heart to get to Jesus. Even getting out of our own way to do it. He is the treasure in the field. That's what He is. And last week we looked at how self-denial it isn't a teeth-grinding endeavor of pain and loss. Rather, it's God's changing of our desires so we no longer want those things that are harmful to us, but rather now we desire healthy, godly, good things in our lives. And we talked about our willingness to dying to self in coming to Christ, realizing in Jesus there is truly life abundant. But we all know, like I said last week, sometimes we don't really believe that it can happen. But we've got to realize that the, li- the lies that we believed in the common culture's worldview in which we've all swum. I'm not proposing an us-them attitude. We're all great in here. They're all trash out there. That's not what I'm saying. We all are in the same boat together at some extent. But we do swap out our worldview for a different biblical worldview when we walk into Christ, life with Christ. And we realize that all the lies that we've listened to and we believed and we've swallowed before, that, and that lie being that our pursuit of self-fulfillment in whatever form out there in the world will give us all that fulfillment and all that satisfaction that we think it will bring, but we know it doesn't. It doesn't, and it never will. Our desires simply grow more ravenous. Our identity, wherever we place it, becomes more needy, more insecure. If it's in your job, your career, your power, or some role in life, and that gets taken away, you're lost. You are lost. People talked on this retreat about losing their jobs, and suddenly, bang, life just was over. If it's in your identity centered around your sexuality, which is a very new phenomenon, it'll crumble because that's not where it should be, and it doesn't work. If your identity is in some other person and they leave or they're taken from you in some way, you are devastated. Rather, we need to be like the man in the field. Do you think he was sad? Do you think he was hurt to to sell all that he had to get that thing that was more valuable than everything he owned? Not at all. He was joyous. It's a joy When you really do come up at it, it's a joy to give all that we gain or all that we have to gain the kingdom of God. It is a joy. Somebody once said, he is not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep for the sake of what he can never lose. You give up everything for the sake of Christ because you can never lose Christ. To die to self is always exchanging the lesser for the greater 
It's always exchanging the lesser for the greater. It's not just about intellectually grasping the principles of proper theology, although it's good to know those things. It's not just about grasping that thing, but it is a divine movement in our hearts, not just at the moment of salvation, but in every day of our spiritual formation. It is the Holy Spirit's power working in us, changing us by the Word of God, enabling us to have the kingdom of God implanted within us. It's not about our personal fulfillment, but of gaining our true identity in Christ, of Jesus leading us actually into real personal fulfillment, which is only and only can be found in Him. And this brings about a joy which isn't about everything going well for me, but rather it's me suffering well as Jesus did for the sake of the kingdom of God and life which produces the life of Christ in us to be able to, to live out the teachings such as uh, Luke 6, 37-40. He says, don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it'll be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over, right? Will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And he also told him this parable, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Fully trained by Christ, becoming like Christ, right? Because it is a spiritual axiom. It's a spiritual truth that we will feel dry at times. We'll, we'll experience pain and suffering and loss. There will be days where this life feels more like the cross than the empty tomb, right? You all know it. Some of you very acutely right now. And it's at those times that we've got to hold on to the truth of Scripture and keep moving forward. We need to hold on to 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. There are times when we don't want to give of ourselves. We don't want to do ministry. We don't want to get close to Jesus. We want to give up. We don't, we don't want to show up. We don't want to engage in the spiritual life. We want only to sow sparingly, to take it easy, to watch Netflix and numb, get numb, right? Verse 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And this is not just about money, I don't think. This is about everything. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I was recently speaking to someone who was feeling dry. Actually, a few people that were feeling dry. Not getting anything out of anything, they're saying, right? That's a normal, that's, that's a normal feeling in the spiritual life, by the way. You're not wrong if you feel that way. And my, my advice to that person is simply keep going. Rob said, shared at the men's retreat that he asked me a couple years ago, uh, this, this, is my, this is my great like, uh, seminary training coming out. He says, how do I read the Bible? And I said, just read it, right? And this is my, this is my, this is my advice to you when you're feeling uh, spiritually dry. Just simply keep going, right? Plod through the valley of the shadow of death. With your rod and your staff, 
right? Plod through it. Keep going. Be methodical. Use your well-worn tools which you have worked with all your spiritual life before. Since in digging in the dirt, you get sweaty and you get tired and you get dizzy, but eventually you uncover a treasure that God has in store for you. It's in those times we remember... Sorry, I'm making him cry. Sorry, Ez. Gosh, he's so cute. Why would I... <laughs> My daughter's is so excited. Is Ezra coming over this week? Is Ezra coming over this week? I don't know. Ask him. Um, um, <laughs> but it's in these times that we, that, 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 to, that we need to remember the promises we have more than any other time, right? Luke chapter 12, 32 through 34. Don't be afraid, little flock. Isn't that nice? Little flock. For your father has, pleased to, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Right? God, Daddy, Abba, Father, is pleased to give us the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Right? Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Is my treasure with Jesus or not? Is it with something else? Is something standing between me and Jesus? Because when we feel dry, we want to give up. Our desires rear their ugly heads and they say, this will make you feel better. But it never does. It never does. Keep moving forward. Keep going. Know where your identity lies. That is in Jesus. That is in the kingdom of God. Do all things without grumbling or complaining or arguing. Philippians 2.14, right? We've talked a lot in this series about love God, love your neighbor. I think it's Mark 12.30, right? Kim and I have noticed uh, as you drive around the neighborhoods and you see the lawn signs and stuff that that the words of loving your neighbor have been usurped by the secular community. Wonderful. You know, wonderful. Great. I'm glad that Jesus is infecting everybody. But, but I've got to say this. Loving your neighbor without framing it first in the love of God, without putting Jesus first as Lord over all of that, always degenerates into self-love. It means you love one person or one group, but you hate another group or another person. No matter what you say, you do. It means you love like the, the, the pet issues, but you hate the other issues and the people that follow them. It births a self-deification where we put ourselves in the place of God and we get to decide who deserves love and who does not deserve love. But love of God and understanding what Jeremiah says to us for the past few weeks, that our hearts are deceitful and beyond cure. We need Jesus. The love of God driving towards a true love of neighbor pulls all the aspects of the human condition together, making for a whole person in proper alignment as God intended us to be. It makes a holistic, mature believer. And as we experience God's kingdom life more, we see this to be true. We see this to be evident more and more. As we submit, understanding comes. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We become better and more loving neighbors 
as we love Jesus more. Isn't that strange? As we submit our time and our talent and our treasure and our sexuality and our relationships and our bodies and our words and our thoughts, we become more and more and more aligned with Jesus' heart and we see life more clearly through His eyes. It's our spiritual act of worship. And we know ourselves better then as we learn to view ourselves through the eyes of our Creator and viewing everybody else through the eyes of our Creator and viewing the world through a different reality than everybody else is viewing it. George Mueller once said, there was a day when I died. He wasn't dead, by the way. This is metaphorical. There was a day when I died. Or actually, maybe not metaphorical, but spiritually, he died. This old self died, right? I died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world. It's approval or it's censure. Die to the approval or the blame even of my brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. And people said that George Mueller had Psalm 23 written all over his face. Not literally, but he had that peace, right? He's walking through the valley of the shadow of death and he's got a confidence and a joy and a love of life. Wouldn't you enjoy a little peace? Wouldn't you? A life where others' opinions of you only mattered when they really needed to matter, and they didn't destroy you, but they actually built you up. A life where the news didn't upset you, and you didn't have to feed yourself with it all the day, all the time so that you were on point with everybody you argued with. Or traffic didn't tie you up in knots and, and bring you to the point of flipping everybody the bird and thinking, I shouldn't have done that. Or not to have to worry about money even when you don't have money because you know God's got your life in His hands. Vinny shared a story about when they were younger and Jack was just a little guy and they had to choose between playing the water bill or the electric bill. But He's here, right? God took care of him. Or a life where you could lose that crippling intense anxiety that plagues you in every social situation or in times where you feel physically in danger. Where even in the face of death, you could say, I'm okay. I got a God that can take care of this. I know where I'm going. Or you could lose that self-righteous pride and that constant disgust and that constant bitterness and that constant judgment of everybody around you. You could actually have a sense of humor about life and you could be happy. You could be happy. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to live like that all the time? St. Francis of Assisi said, wear the world like a loose garment which touches us in a few places and there lightly. That's good. That's good advice, Right? The tight clothes limit your movement. You feel them all the time. When you sit down, they cut into your stomach, especially mine when I'm 20 pounds overweight, right? You feel them. You're constricted by them, right? But but being in the world and not of the world is like wearing a light silk toga. You feel it a little bit on your shoulders. You might feel it around your waist a little bit. It brushes up against you here and there, but it, it feels so light. You hardly feel it, right? 
And that is done by being an engaged disciple of Christ, putting ourselves in the position of receiving more of Jesus every single day of our lives. That's not to turn off our feelings. That's not to eliminate our desires. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about becoming numb, mind-numbing, like, oh, praise Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. I've had somebody like that this week. You, don't, you would not know them. I was like, are you, are you alive? Like, like let, let me feel your pulse. Are you alive? Like, what's going on in you, right? So it's not to turn off our feelings. It's not to eliminate our desires. Rather, it's in submitting ourselves to Him, our desires and our feelings come into proper order and alignment under Jesus. And they're no longer this all-consuming, all-hurtful thing of us and others around us. If our desires in Christ are strong at all, they reveal His desire, His passion for the world. His passion for justice. His passion for loving other people. And not our own selfish directives. What I get. See, the maturing Christian has little concern about getting their own way and much more concern about seeing Christ's initiatives of love and forgiveness and mercy and justice established in the world. They live in the trust of the words of Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And they realize that God's not only in charge of their life, but He's in charge of the whole world. He's in charge of the American government. He's in charge of our society, even though sometimes it doesn't look it. And that's a truth which settles their soul. They become peaceful. And so anxiety and fear and anger and bitterness all ebb away as they realize that God will work all this out for His good. They may be very passionate people. They're not hurtful people. They they don't need to control themselves anymore. It's not legalism. It's not just like, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go here. I'm not going to go there. It's not all about legalism and all that kind of stuff. They don't need to control themselves anymore because their desires have fallen in line with Jesus' heart. That's a difference. Nor do they have to control others because it's simply not their job to control anybody else. They allow God to be God in the world and the lives of others. They may lead They may move and challenge and pray for and care for and encourage people, but they don't have to control you. Very simply, in submitting ourselves to Christ, we fall into into becoming a true disciple, a follower. One who dies to self, not controlled by thought, feeling, or action of self-exaltation or having their own way in the world. Rather, we are controlled by the love of God and the love of neighbor in that order. And we're not perfect. We're growing. We're not prideful. We know we're just like everybody else. As it says in 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. I was really proud of the guys this weekend because it was like they were very open about all the struggles that they have in life. It was really cool to hear. It just really was. So we don't deny that we can fall back into the self-will, that we can 
fall back into living out of the flesh, but, but we have the tools to get out of that pit at our disposal at all times. And we know that, and Jesus extends His hand down to lift us out of that pit. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has seized you except for what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Amen. Amen. Memorize that. You'll notice I did. Maybe not in this version. Different version. But this becomes important, right? When we become, you know, embroiled in conflict with others, right? We're going to bump up against each other and have conflict. In those times where anger and self-will so easily seem to overtake us and we want our own way, and Right? But it's, it's, in, it's then that we must look at John 12, right? We say, where Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, that's dying of self, right? It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's fruitful, right? Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The life of Christ in us, as we're transformed by His Word and His Spirit, subverts, it overtakes, it replaces the radical evil in us which seems so easily to take us over at times. You need your leaders to say that they've changed, that they've seen this work in life. You need your brothers and sisters around you to say, you want to hear their testimony, say, God has really worked in me. I bet you if you asked Jamie Hawthorne, she would say God's worked in her because she said it to me. She's told me her stories. Megan, God's worked in Megan's life. We heard her story a few months back, right? And so when Christ takes us over, when that happens, the desperation and the anger and the unforgiveness and the anxiety and the need to retaliate upon others is cut out of us like with a knife. And then Jesus is allowed to work good in us, change in us. Not only to bring peace to our minds, but to our relationships and to our spheres of influence in the world. Let me pray for us. Father, I do not understand how I write sermons to be 20 minutes and they become 45 minutes. (laughs) Forgive me. Um, Come, Holy Spirit. Come and bless us. We want to dig through your scriptures. We want to ingest. We want to eat. I, I forget where that passage is where you feed the prophet the scroll. It just tastes like sweet honey on his lips. And I just pray that we would eat your word, but it wouldn't be an intellectual exercise only, but it would be something where we see your power exploding in us and overtaking us and that we would find victory in secret ways and ways that we've hidden all of our lives or that you would solve the hurts and the pains that hold us back in our hearts. That you would take us out of ourselves so that we can look to you and then therefore look to our neighbors and love them and share you with them. Come and move in us. Move in us in powerful ways.